traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. Sailing said about the episode that we're going to be discussing tonight. I got the idea for this one watching a Santa Claus float. The worthy gentleman chosen for the role must have been a last minute and at least third string replacement. He weighed just a few pounds more than Slim Somerville, and his Santa Claus suit must have been dredged out of a canal someplace. It suddenly came to me that perhaps there's a story lurking somewhere in the whole concept of these guys who play Santa Claus for a living. And then I started to conceive of a tale of what would happen to an airstar Chris Kringle if he found he suddenly was Santa Claus. This is Mr. Henry Corwin, normally unemployed, who once a year takes the lead role in the uniquely popular American institution, that of the department store Santa Claus, in a road company version of the night before Christmas. But in just a moment, Mr. Henry Corwin, Ursad Santa Claus, will enter a strange kind of North Pole, which is one part the wondrous spirit of Christmas and one part the magic that can only be found in the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on the 23rd of the 12th, 1960, written by Rod Serling and directed by Jack Smythe. We've already come across Jack Smythe in season two of The Twilight Zone with another of those videotaped episodes, The Lateness of the Hour, and he also directed the first season classic, The Lonely. But there are other previous connections between our three main players here. There's Rod Serling, Jack Smythe, and the actor who plays Henry Corwin, Art Carney. Art Carney starred in a Serling-penned episode of Playhouse 90 called The Velvet Alley, and Jack Smythe had also directed Carney in several things. Most recently, before this, a story called Full Moon Over Brooklyn, which was the final show in a series of Art Carney specials. If we look through Rod Sailing's career, there are numerous instances of his love for Christmas manifesting in the stories that he told. Back in his radio days, he wrote an unproduced script called No Christmas This Year in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. Martin Grams Jr. gives this synopsis. It told the tale of a civilization that dispenses with Christmas. No one knew exactly why this was so. They just knew it was happening, and the mayor of the town claimed someone high up was responsible for the decision. Santa up at the North Pole has his own problems. The elves are on strike. The factory no longer manufactures toys. They produce crying gas, heavy bombs, fire bombs, and atomic bombs. Worse, he's been shot at when he flies over Palestine and China. 
and one of his elves got hit by shrapnel over Greece. And when Rod Sailing wrote Night of the Meek, he fashioned the characters for Mr. Dundee and Sister Florence from characters in this radio script. Post-Twilight Zone, Rod Sailing wrote A Carol for Another Christmas, which was a standalone TV movie. That's his own take on the Charles Dickens story, A Christmas Carol. Now, if you remember, Chris Brown uh, reviewed that in his final episode of the Night Gallery podcast. It doesn't really seem to have cemented itself in the hearts and minds of people as part of their Christmas traditions, and that podcast by Chris explores the reasons why. Christmas stories that do that tend to touch people in the right way, and do end up living forever. So let's see if Night of the Meek is Rod Sailing's shot at Christmas immortality. As a line of children builds at a department store grotto, the Santa that they're waiting for, Henry Corwin, sits getting wasted in a bar. A couple of children knock on the window and, drunk as he is, he waves to them. Quite refreshingly, he's not a boozy bad Santa, We've seen a few of those over the years in things like Miracle on 34th Street and obviously in the film Bad Santa. But no, this one is actually a good man. Why do you suppose there isn't really a Santa Claus? How's that? Why isn't there a real Santa Claus? For kids like that. What am I supposed to be, some kind of philosopher? You know what your trouble is, Corwin? You let that dopey red suit go to your head. What are you, some kind of a nut? Here's your change. I'll flip you. Double a nut. Come on, what do you think this is, Monte Carlo? Finish your sandwich and get out of here. I've had enough to eat. So this scene where we're introduced to Henry Corwin, I like it a lot, and it says a lot with quite a few words. First of all, Art Carney, who plays Henry Corwin, dressed as Santa Claus, is probably one of the best on-screen drunks I've ever seen. He's very convincing, he's not overplaying it like some people do, even very good actors can't often do a drunken performance convincingly. And then Rod Sailing keeps his dialogue to a minimum. Now don't get me wrong, I love Sailing dialogue, but here he tells us all we need to know about Henry with just a few words. The children come and knock on the window and he's genuinely pleased to see them. Then he laments that there isn't really a Santa Claus for kids like that. And then when he looks at the food and drink in front of him, he says he's had enough. Then he pauses and says to eat and pushes the plate away, leaving the glass there. So with these few little exchanges, we see that he is a good man, but he's clearly got a problem with drink. And when he goes to his job at the department store where he's supposed to be the Santa Claus, he gets fired for being drunk, he's devastated, and he's also ashamed of himself. And now, Mr. Kris Kringle of the Lower Decks, since it is only a few hours till closing time, it is my distinct pleasure to tell you that there is no more need for your services. You have had it. Now get out of here. I'll be very glad to. And get that crummy red suit back to wherever you rented it from before you really tie one on and destroy it for good and all. You drunk! Thank you very much, Mr. Dundee. That's to my drinking. 
This is indefensible. And you have my abject apologies. I find of late that I have very little choice in the matter of expressing emotions. I can either drink or I can weep. And drinking is so much more subtle. Will you please leave? But as for my insubordination, I was not rude to that woman. Someone should remind her that Christmas is more than barging up and down department store aisles and pushing people out of the way. Now, Corwin... Someone has to tell her that Christmas is another thing finer than that. Richer, finer, truer. And it should come with patience and love, charity, compassion. That's what I would have told her if you'd give me the chance. So there's our Rod Sailing dialogue, and some might say Henry is a little too eloquent for a drunk at that point, but don't we all think we're that eloquent when we're drunk? But I don't think it's the case when it's R. Carney who is delivering the lines. He sells it, and he sells the tragedy of Henry Corwin as well, who is in such a hole that he can only drink or weep. He also sells that he believes in what he's saying about Christmas. He says it's more than just running around department stores. Now often in the Twilight Zone, there's a point where a character does something bad and it's as if then the Twilight Zone sits up and takes notice and plans out their ironic comeuppance. This time the door swings the other way. You know, Henry is a flawed man. He's down on his luck. He's embarrassingly drunk but he's apologetic, he's not rude, he has a good heart, and it's not cosmic justice this man needs, but a helping hand from the Twilight Zone. You know another reason why I drink, Mr. Dundee? So that when I walk down the tenements, I can really think it's the North Pole, and the children are elves, and that I'm really Santa Claus, bringing them a bag of wondrous gifts for all of them. I just wish Mr. Dundee on one Christmas, only one, that I could see some of the hopeless ones and the dreamless ones. Just on one Christmas, I'd like to see the meek inherit the earth. So the wish is made, and as Henry walks the streets, he finds a bag, and what was once a bag of old tin cans suddenly becomes a bag of presents and Henry wastes no time bringing some Christmas cheer to his neighbours. Now what will be your pleasure for Christmas, gentlemen? How about you, Bert? I fancy a new pipe. You fancy a new pipe? I'll see what I can do for you, Bert. Here's your new pipe for you. Ooh. How about you, sir? I want a sweater. A sweater? What size? Who cares what size? What? Oh, thank you. Uh, could could thank I have you a smoking jacket? A smoking jacket to go with a pipe for it? I'll see what I can... Yes, there's your smoking jacket. Oh. Where did you get all these gifts? Sister Florence, don't ask me to explain. I'm just as much in the dark as anybody else. All I know is I've got a Santa Claus bag here that gives everybody exactly what they want for Christmas. And as long as it's putting out, I'm putting in. <laughs> Sister Florence, how about a new dress? Yeah. So here we are with Henry in this homeless mission. 
filled with lovable down and outs and Henry is handing out gifts to everyone. But the woman who is working at the mission is quite a craggy, cantankerous character, very disapproving of Henry and this portrayal prompted one viewer, Mrs. Marilyn Lister from Milwaukee, to write a letter to Rod Serling. It said, I enjoyed the plot, but there were several details of it that I disliked. The one thing I disliked most was the portrayal of the woman at the mission. I think your characterization of this woman was in bad taste and completely unfair to the people who dedicate their lives to helping men and women who are down and out. You could have very easily changed this part of your show without harming the story. Why was it so necessary to put this woman in the mission in a bad light? Now Rod Serling wrote back with an apology. He said, ours is never the job to knowingly offend, and I think you read something into the characterization that was not there. I would have no reason whatsoever to slight the men and women who do spend their lives helping others. I do think this is quite a lovely scene, seeing Henry sober, or at least more sober, full of life, enthusiasm. It's really heartwarming, but unfortunately, the local police sergeant comes and takes him to the station, believing everything in Santa's bag to be stolen. Uh-huh. Here he is, and here we are, and there that is. And here you are. How nice to see you again, Mr. Dundee. And how nice it will be to see my wistful St. Nicholas going up the river. You suppose he can get as much as ten years? Ten years? Well, it don't look good, Corwin. Of course, they could lop off a few months if he was to tell them where the rest of the loot was. He'd be giving out the stuff for two and a half hours. He must have a warehouse full of it. I'm glad you brought that up, officer. There seems to be a slight discrepancy here. Henry's old employer from the department store, Mr. Dundee, comes to identify the stolen goods from Henry's bag. Mr. Dundee is played by John Fielder, again a very prolific actor who you may remember seeing in the film of The Odd Couple and also its television spin-off. But if you don't remember seeing him in anything, then you'll almost certainly remember hearing him. He has quite a distinctive soft voice and in 1968 for the first time he voiced the character of Piglet in Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day. He wasn't the first actor to voice the character, but it had previously been voiced by females. After John Fielder voiced Piglet, there were a couple of occasions when the character was voiced by other people, but they became less and less as Fielder became the definitive voice of Piglet. And it's quite nice that he ended up voicing the character for almost 40 years until his last performance in Pooh's Heffalump Halloween movie, which was released in 2005. The same year that, unfortunately, John Fielder passed away at the age of 80. He is quite a unique little uh, chap, John Fielder, and perfect casting for this part, I think, because we need to dislike the character of Mr. Dundee initially, but then we come round to him as he gets filled with the joys of Christmas later on. And I think he pulls it off, and he might not be quite as good a TV drunk as our Carney was, but he gives it his best shot. Listen, you moth-eaten Robin Hood. The wholesale theft of thousands of dollars worth of goods is not a slight discrepancy. 
Though I can tell you right now, Corwin, this whole affair comes as no surprise to me. I perceived that criminal glint in your eye the first minute I laid eyes on you. I'm not a student of human nature for nothing. <laughs> Seems to me that you've put your finger on the problem, Mr. Dundee. This bag doesn't know whether to give out gifts or garbage. Perhaps the funniest scene of the episode as Mr. Dundee starts to take all of the things from the bag and it's back to being tin cans again and a cat. It doesn't take much for the police sergeant to start to believe that something supernatural is going on, but it takes a bottle of 1903 cherry brandy to convince Mr. Dundee. So Corwin produces one. To me, sometimes this story, it almost seems that by the time it's begun, it's over. It's quite a fast turnaround. And I'm not, I'm not sure that's a criticism as such. It's just the way it seems to happen because once that's happened and Corwin leaves, he ends up giving presents to all the children in the street. But before our story comes to a close, let's just spend a moment with our Santa Claus, our Carney. If you ever detect a hint of a limp at any time, it's because he was an infantryman in World War II and was wounded by shrapnel in his leg, which left him with a limp for the rest of his life. He never took an acting class, but you only need to look at his list of credits to see that it never held him back one bit. He, like John Fielder, has an odd couple connection. Uh, Art Carney originated the role of Felix in the original stage play opposite Walter Matthau on Broadway. American listeners might remember him from uh, the Jackie Gleason show, The Honeymooners, a show that never really made its mark in England, but I believe it's highly regarded in the US. And perhaps playing Santa in The Twilight Zone gave him a taste for it because he played him at least twice more before the end of his career. Now, I do think he's wonderful in this. Like I say, he plays the drunk brilliantly, but also really sells the tragedy of the character of Henry, the sad man who really believes in Christmas, but can't do anything about it. And he also sells the joy that it brings to him when he does get his chance. And that's no more evident than when he's finally given out his last toy and he sits and reflects on the day. Nothing for you this Christmas. Well, I think I've had the nicest Christmas since the beginning of time. Nothing for you, nothing for yourself, not a thing. You know, I... I can't think of anything I want. I guess what I've really wanted is to be the biggest gift giver of all times. And in a way, I think I had that tonight. Although if I had my choice of any gift, any gift at all, I think I'd wish I could do this every year. It'd be some gift, wouldn't it, Bert? Oh, sure would. God bless you, Bert, and Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you too, Santa. And thanks for the smoking jacket and the pipe. Don't mention it. And as we know, Henry gets his wish because when he walks around the corner, he meets a jolly little elf with a sleigh, and he rides off into the future. Now, earlier on, I asked a question about whether this story would be the one to bring Rod Serling that immortal status as a writer of a Christmas story. 
he's already got it as a writer, but you know, will this story stand up with, with the best of them? He didn't think so. On December 12th, 1960, he wrote a letter to Owen Kimura of Young and Rubicon, where he says, The Christmas show, instead of being the sheer delight I had hoped it would be, turned out to be an inconsequential nothing, and I rather think it'll be a terrible disappointment to you. Now, his frustrations came with the fact that it was filmed on videotape, and he said that it was an abomination and looks for all the world like a rough dress rehearsal that is a couple of days from coming around. You know, Rod Serling was often critical of his own work, and sometimes with something like A Thing About Machines, I agree with him. But this time, with the greatest respect, I think that he was wrong, and many of the critics of the day thought he was wrong too. In 1964, Stephen Bobbins of the Eugene A. Teague School in Margate City, New Jersey, wrote to Sailing thanking him for the wonderful story which the kids decided to put on stage. And he said traditionally they'd put on a Christmas carol, but that changed in December of 1964, when Night of the Meek was loosely adapted at a junior high school level for stage production. And I think that maybe Sailing came round to it a little, because he wrote back to Mr. Bobbins and said, I'm delighted that Night of the Meek was done by your class, and I hope it gave pleasure. All writers have pets amongst their output, and this story is my special one. And John Fielder recalled it fondly too, the actor who played Mr. Dundee. He said, I love that. It was a wonderful part and great fun. That was the first time I worked with our Carney. Then, of course, I was on Broadway with him, in The Odd Couple. It was just a really nice part, and working with him and the director, and everything was fun. I had met Rod Sailing several times before. He was a very, very nice man. As we've spoken about before, this is one of those Twilight Zones that was shot on video for cost reasons in season two. As we've heard, Rod Sailing wasn't too happy with that either. Let's face it, unfortunately there is no escape and the fact that these episodes don't look as good as the episodes that are shot on film. Do I wish that Night of the Meek was shot on film? Absolutely I do. But do I think that it's a failure because it wasn't? Absolutely not. I think the charm of the episode and the wonderful performance of Art Carney means that by the time we see him drunk in the bar a minute into the episode, I've pretty much forgotten about the videotape and I'm just enjoying the show. So yeah, you know, in an ideal world it would have been nice to have this one on film, but it works as it is. There are people who will pull this episode out as part of their Christmas traditions and I think that's wonderful. You know, I wish that more people did. Good Twilight Zone has a timeless quality, and I think this one does too. You know, R. Carney's performance is wonderful. I think it's wonderful no matter what time you're viewing it in. He does bring that magic to it that just lifts the whole thing. As I mentioned earlier, we often see the Twilight Zone dishing out some kind of ironic justice. The bad people getting what they deserve, but... Every now and again, things go the other way. Corwin is one of life's lost souls. Without family or career, he medicates himself with alcohol, as he said earlier, because it's preferable to weeping. He's not bitter about his lot in life, though, or angry at the world. He doesn't think he deserves better, but he hopes for better. And in true Christmas spirit, 
he doesn't hope for better for himself, but he hopes for better so he can do better for others, for the children in his neighborhood, for the men at the homeless shelter. This is one of the original series episodes that was adapted for the 80s Twilight Zone. Some people get very angry about these adaptions in the 80s and the 2000s shows, like they're touching something that should be untouchable. And I do get that to some degree, because most of them are inferior to the originals. We spoke about the 2000s remake of Eye of the Beholder, which was such a come-down from the original. But I think with a Christmas story, a good Christmas story, the retelling of it to new generations is part of the magic of it. I mean, look at the Charles Dickens story, A Christmas Carol. How many adaptations of that have there been, you know? too many to count. In the case of Night of the Meek, the uh, the 80s remake is pretty good, I think, you know, and, and I'm glad they did it. And I actually wish that maybe someone would pick it up and do something a bit more with it as well, because, you know, there are many stories of normal people becoming Santa Claus. There was the films The Santa Claus with Tim Allen in, that's kind of taking the concept and doing something with it as well. But this one has a beautiful simplicity to it, you know, it's it's localised in this little neighbourhood. He finds this bag and, you know, he spreads joy to the people that he knows and his reward is that he can then go on and, and spread joy to everyone in the world. We have spoken in previous episodes of the Twilight Zone podcast about Rod Serling's comedic scripts being his weaker ones. I wouldn't call this an out-and-out comedy, but it does have humour in it this time, and it seems to work much better than it has done before. It's a gentler type of comedy, not so broad. It's going for warm-hearted amusement rather than zaniness. And I think that's where it succeeds where maybe others have failed. So I do think that Rod Serling has reserved his place in the lineup of great Christmas storytellers. This is warm-hearted, good-spirited, and does exactly what a good Christmas story should. It fills you with the joy of Christmas. A word to the wise to all the children of the 20th century, whether their concern be pediatrics or geriatrics, whether they crawl on hands and knees and wear diapers, or walk with a cane and comb their beards. There's a wondrous magic to Christmas, and there's a special power reserved for little people. In short, there's nothing mightier than the meek. Often lament the fact that the schedule of the Twilight Zone podcast is quite erratic and uh, you know I apologize for that but sometimes timing puts an episode exactly where it needs to be and I think putting this out a few days before Christmas is exactly where it needs to be so I hope you enjoyed it but more than that I hope that you and your families and your friends have a wonderful Christmas I thank you for your support and your patience with the Twilight Zone podcast over the years and it is turning into years this little three-year project of mine is going on and on but that's the way it goes so 
you know we are a little troubled in the world at the moment to say the least that is an understatement and uh, unfortunately there's a lot of things I wish I could change and I, I guess you wish you could change them too but we just have to do our best you know be good to each other and take the message from things like this show and uh, and really do our best for the people we know our neighbors and so on and hopefully a bit of that Christmas magic can rub off on all of us so so before I go just a couple of things first of all as ever December the 25th is the birthday of the man himself Rod Sailing so I hope you'll join me in raising a glass to the great man and one final bit of trivia for Night of the Meek when it was released on VHS and DVD and sometimes when it's played on television as well there was an off-camera um, comment from Rod Sailing that was removed for those releases but under the watchful eye of Mark Zickery I imagine with the release of The Twilight Zone on Blu-ray that line was reinstated and it simply was and a Merry Christmas to each and all. Dashing through the snow In a one-horse open sleigh O'er the fields we go